Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This week's podcast will be on the story of Jessica Dishon. Most of my information comes from the show Cold Case Files by A&E on Netflix, but other sources, many other sources were used as well. And I'm going to have to throw my disclaimer, disclaimer out right now. I knew this case was going to be tough. It was listener requested, of course. But once I began digging and getting into the details, well, it's heartbreaking. But I didn't want to leave out any of the details because I wanted to convey just how horrific this was. So here is your warning, okay? Jessica Dawn Dishon was born on May 2nd, 1982. Her parents are Mike and Edna Dishon. The couple have since divorced. She has two younger brothers, Christopher and Michael. Edna was only 17 when she gave birth to Jessica. As she grew into a little girl, Mike, her father, would take his doting daughter on hunting trips with him. They were very close. She was raised in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, which is described as a close-knit community where neighbors know each other. Long lineages of families still live there. It is small, remote, everyone connected. Now, Jessica was planning on studying the culinary arts, and she cooked for her parents and brothers. 17-year-old Jessica went missing on Friday, September 10, 1999, from her own driveway. So at 5.30 a.m., Edna woke up to get ready for work. Mike told Edna goodbye, you know, have a good day, kiss on the cheek, what have you, and then he went back in to get the boys up and ready for school. He thought he would peek in on Jessica, and he saw her sleeping soundly in her bed, though he thought he'd leave her be while he got the boys ready. After the boys were up and getting ready to catch the bus for school, Mike satisfied that the morning was going well, he got in his truck, and he left for work. After that, the boys got on the bus. It was said that Jessica's normal routine was to get up to the sound of her alarm at 6.45 a.m. to start getting ready for school. She was normally leaving by about 7.15 and she drove herself in her red Pontiac Sunfire car that she had paid for herself by saving up her paychecks from a local Hardee's she had worked at. She was then a senior at Bullet Central High School. At 1.30 p.m., Edna returned home from work and saw that her daughter's car was still in the driveway. She went inside looking for and calling for her daughter. Jessica was nowhere to be found. She called her then-husband, Mike, and asked him if he knew where Jessica was. He said that he imagined she was at school and that he had checked on her that morning and had seen her sleeping in her bed. Edna told him that Jessica's car was still in the driveway, but she was not home. So Mike suggested she get the spare key to their daughter's car, unlock it, and see if it would start. 
because of course a father's first instinct would be that, you know, perhaps the car didn't start so she caught a ride to school with a friend. It seems reasonable. Edna got the spare key and opened the door to the car. Inside, on the passenger seat, was her backpack, her work clothes, her purse, one shoe just haphazardly in the driver's side floorboard, and her phone, with two numbers typed onto the display. The haunting numbers 9 and 1. Immediately, Edna knew something was wrong. She called Mike again and told him to come home. So once Mike arrived home, they began calling Jessica's friends and the school to try to find her, but no one had seen her. The school told the concerned parents that Jessica had in fact not even been to one class that day. They went to her after school job and again, they hadn't heard from her either. So after a few hours of general looking around, Mike and Edna went to the police. The police listened to their concerns, but indicated that she was most likely a runaway and all but brushed the concerned parents off. Her father would angrily reply, quote, No, she's not no runaway with one shoe on and one shoe off, unquote. The police told them to go back home and wait for Jessica to return, and if she didn't, come back the next morning. So the next morning, Saturday morning, the couple returned to the police station wanting the police to take immediate action as any parents would. They were told to go home. Later that day, two police officers came to the Dishon residence in one single police car. The officers did not seal off the area around the car or the car itself leaving all possible evidence open to contamination. The entire area around the car, the actual car, and everything inside the car had been touched and not a single glove was worn. To Mike, he felt as though there was zero sense of urgency to find his missing daughter. After the car was searched, with bare hands I might add, the officers left the property. Saturday turned into Sunday, and yet there was no word from Jessica. Mike was interviewed for the local news and stated quite plainly that he did not feel that there was enough being done to find his missing daughter. By Monday morning, it finally began to truly sink in that she was gone, really gone. Most everyone in the local community began to look for the teenage girl. Mike's brother, Stanley, told him that if someone was going to kill anybody, quote unquote, they'd put them in the river bottom. And for those that aren't familiar with that term, it's just the narrow flatlands that are right next to a river that can flood if the rainy seasons are particularly heavy. Now, this area, the River Bottoms, already had a reputation for being the place where, let's say, mischievous people do mischievous things. One of the detectives said the first time she went there, she felt that it was definitely a creepy place and it made the hairs stand up on the back of her neck. Now, as the search was going on, Stanley, Mike's brother, started acting kind of strange, according to Mike. 
As the search continued, at one point, Stanley became physically ill, vomiting on the ground, so he was taken home. But the search of the river bottom turned up nothing. The FBI got involved in the search, and a reward was posted for information about her whereabouts. The community held vigils. So, one night, one of Jessica's brothers apparently came running into the house, swearing that he had heard his sister Jessica screaming for help. So Mike grabbed his gun, his brother Stanley with him, appearing out of nowhere apparently, and they all went looking for her. Mike states that he saw one of his neighbors. Now keep in mind this is a rural area, so neighbors are not close together. He saw his neighbor, Bucky Brooks, burning a bunch of clothes. Now there's history between these families. Needless to say, they did not get along. According to Mike, Bucky allegedly called their house after Jessica was missing, breathing hard into the phone or yelling, help me, help me, into the phone. Like, what the fuck? So Mike approached Bucky as he's burning stuff in this fire and he asked him for permission to search his property. Bucky Brooks told him no, and in fact, the Brooks were the only ones who did not want their property searched. Mike again told the media that he felt the Brooks were involved. So, the police come to the house with cadaver dogs and ask for the clothes Jessica had been wearing the night before she went missing. The dogs took in her scent and they searched the Brooks' property. The police noted that Bucky was acting a bit different and the dogs picked up on a scent in Bucky's fire pit. In the fire were two pair of jersey gloves that the dogs hit on, but they did not arrest Bucky. At this point, Mike got the FBI involved and they immediately took the investigation as seriously as it should have been day one. They impounded Jessica's car. They walked all through the deep, dense mud of ponds with sticks to see if she might have been dumped there. Then the FBI stated that she was most likely abducted by someone she knew. And then they contacted Mike and showed him a picture they found in Bucky Brooks's barn. It was a school picture of Jessica. At this point, Bucky became the prime suspect. On September 27th, 17 days after she disappeared, many sources say her body was found by a bus driver 90 or so feet from the side of a road in the river bottoms, just seven miles from her own home. Now that's one source. The documentary said a woman driving in from another town was driving through the river bottoms and saw what looked like a person sitting oddly under a tree. She then stopped investigated, saw that it was a dead body, left and called the police. Was the woman the bus driver? I'm not sure, but you know what? That is not what's important. What's important was that she was finally found. The FBI arrived to find Jessica in an advanced state of decomposition. She was described as, quote, unrecognizable, unquote. And yet, because Mike just really could not do it, Edna had to go down to the river bottom, face the body, 
of her dead daughter to identify her, and she said she couldn't even tell it was her by looking at her face. She only recognized her by a butterfly tattoo that the body had. The autopsy report showed that she had been kept alive for three days. And in those three days, it was also determined that she had been tortured, that she had been, quote, violently sexually assaulted, unquote, suffered a broken jaw, some of her fingers had been cut off, and there was no evidence that she had been given any food or water before her death, which was officially determined to be strangulation. The body was then dumped off of Greenwell Ford Road, left for about 15 days. Then the murderer returned to the scene and moved the body 15 feet closer to the road and therefore visible from the road and propped it up against a tree, indicating they wanted her body to be found. This meant to the authorities that the murder must have been personal. So, the authorities brought Bucky Brooks in for questioning. He told the police that he had seen Jessica walking down her driveway the day she had gone missing. Then he said he had not seen her because he was um, being intimate with his wife, to which his wife completely denied. Bucky then said that he had been working on his father's property, hauling water for their family business. Again and again, he lied to the police, so they did a polygraph, which he promptly failed. So the case against Bucky began to take shape, and he was eventually arrested and charged with Jessica's murder. He was also facing the death penalty. Now, something I found quite puzzling is that when detectives asked him what he'd say if they found his fingerprints on the body, his response was, quote, I guess I'd have to admit it, unquote. Sources say that much of the evidence presented against Bucky was circumstantial and mishandled. An example would be that literally parts of Jessica's remains were put in boxes heavily labeled keep frozen, and yet they were never put into temperature-controlled environments. And then Detective Charlie Mann was asked to testify and was then, quote, hounded about why they focused so heavily on Bucky Brooks, and he became so frustrated, he blurted out that Bucky had failed the polygraph. Now, this is a problem. You see, the results of a polygraph test are inadmissible in court because the results can mean many different things and are scientifically unreliable. Therefore, they cannot be discussed during a trial. So, of course, this led to a mistrial. In 2003, as the judge began to dismiss everyone, Mike stood up and began shouting, and I don't blame him. Edna had to excuse herself immediately. They truly felt that their daughter's murderer was just set free and nothing else was being done about it. No additional evidence brought one looking into anything. The case went stagnant. A large wooden cross was erected at the site where her body was found as a memorial for her, her name written across it, and flowers set below it. 
Now, interestingly, Bucky's attorneys did investigate other possible suspects in preparation for their case. There were apparently two drug dealers who stated they saw Jessica the day before she disappeared, and they also investigated her own uncle, Stanley Dishon. And yet, the case went cold for almost 10 years. And during that time, the heartache and the stress began to take its toll on Mike and Edna's marriage, and they divorced. So in 2012, seasoned Louisville, Kentucky detective Lynn Hunt, who was a badass, I might add, was the commander of sex crimes and elderly abuse, and she had officially actually retired from the force. She decided to get back onto the saddle, so to speak, when she was asked to look at some old cold cases in Bullock County, where Jessica's case was out of. Detective Hunt said that this type of case was her absolute passion, and she dove right in. In an interview, she stated, When I started the investigation, I had such little paper information there in the sheriff's office. Mostly it was just loose-leaf paper thrown in boxes, napkins, sticky notes, no phone numbers of individuals they had interviewed, no birth dates, no addresses, no nothing. Unquote. As she looked over what she had to work with, she contacted Mike and told him that she was going to reopen Jessica's case. Keep in mind that Mike and Edna were no longer speaking, and as of the end of this documentary and some of my sources, they were still not speaking. But Mike invited Detective Hunt to his house where she was given a box and inside the box was the one shoe that was found in her car along with her old cell phone and her billfold. She took it back to the office to look at it again. She also contacted the prosecution and defense attorneys, gathered everything and started from scratch. Within some of the boxes, she found Bucky's psychiatric evaluation, and it stated that he had an IQ of 61, indicating mild mental disability, the mental equivalent of a third grader. People with an IQ this low have significantly impaired mental development, though the intellectual level can vary. In other words, according to Detective Hunt, he should have never been given a polygraph test. So she began to walk through the evidence, you know, interviewing people, and she was just hitting dead ends. Then, by chance, she got some information from a former colleague stating there was a prison informant who had information about the Dishon case. This inmate told her that he was in prison for sexual assault and abuse of minors, and he had been in a cell with another man who had been charged with the same offense. The inmate stated that that fellow inmate was Stanley Dishon, Mike's brother, Jessica's uncle, and he had said that he murdered Jessica. In a taped interview, the inmate said, quote, he stated that he had Jessica for a couple of days and then he took her life. The reason he did any mutilation to her, he was trying to make it look like some drug dealers or a cartel done that to her. Unquote. Now this inmate knew things that he would have no knowledge of from the crime scene and so on. 
So let's get into Stanley's background for just a bit. It's not like he has an easily found detailed biography, but at the same time, he's not the primary focus of the story. Doing the math, it appears he was born in 1959 and he had several siblings. Mike Dishon stated that Stanley, when they were kids, stabbed one of their brothers and shot another one with a shotgun during two childhood incidents. Stanley, as a young man, moved between his siblings' homes and it was discovered that he sexually abused many of their children. From 1973 through 1976, when he was between the ages of 14 to 17 years old, he sexually abused a female relative starting when she was just six years old and ending when she was nine. He then began abusing her again when she was between the ages of 15 and 20, between 1982 and 1987. Also in 1982, he sexually assaulted another female relative when she was just seven years old. He had been living with Mike and Edna from 1989 to 1996, and during those seven years, he had sexually abused Jessica. He had molested her. He had raped her. Horrible. She would have been seven years old when he first started living there, and he moved out when she was 14. Stanley began sexually assaulting a male relative from 1996 to 1997, and that victim was only nine years old. Then from 99 through 2002, he began sexually assaulting yet another female family member, beginning when she was just six years old. Now folks, that's five family members that were just children. He had, wrap your mind around this, he had incestual relations with children. Five children. Five related children. So the inmate, and actually sources say there were two separate inmates, gave extremely similar stories about what Stanley told them. Stanley stated that he found out that Jessica had been seeing a boy her own age, and Stanley was extremely jealous of this. It was also said that Jessica found out he was molesting his own daughter and stepdaughter and, quote, was going to tell, unquote. He told the other men that he was very afraid that she would disclose the abuse he had been doing to her for years and years, so he made a decision. Allegedly, he first went to her school to confront her but didn't see her car so he knew she wasn't there yet. He then drove to her house where he and Jessica argued in the backyard. Stanley then told the inmates that he grabbed her out of her car as she attempted to leave. This must have been when she attempted to call 911. He choked her but she got away. He then allegedly chased her into the residence. He pushed her onto the bed. He punched her in the face, thus breaking her jaw and knocking her out. He then wrapped her in her own bedsheet and took Jessica to a barn that was pretty close to where the teenagers all frequented to party. He then kept her there and tortured her for three days. Once he was done torturing her, he strangled her, 
cut her throat with a knife and later placed her body in a brush pile near water. He told one of the inmates he had to dismember a part of her to be able to move her body. One of the inmates stated that Stanley kept the other shoe after he cut her foot off. So Detective Hunt and one of Jessica's now grown brothers went out and they found the barn and inside they found a sheet that matched the blanket that was still on Jessica's bed as her parents had not changed anything in her room in all those years. Now Stanley had already been charged in 2002 with sexually abusing two girls ages 8 and 10, most likely his daughter and stepdaughter, and also sodomy of one of those girls. The girls testified that he threatened to spank both of the girls if they told on him according to court records. He was convicted and had nearly completed his sentence when he was indicted yet again accused of sexually assaulting yet another girl under the age of 12 back in 1982, which was one of the previously mentioned nieces. As Stanley was brought into court to face murder charges, Detective Hunt told Mike, Jessica's father, that she was going to indict his brother. And Mike replied, quote, Well, if he's guilty, I want the death penalty. Unquote. During the testimony of his victims, relatives, and other witnesses, it was said that he showed no remorse and, quote, even smiled, unquote. The prosecution, attorney Michael Ferguson, told reporters that, quote, that reaction is insightful as to who he is and what he is, unquote. He went on to say that prison will be a miserable time for him as a convicted sex offender who also pled guilty to killing a teen. He put in an Alford plea, meaning that he acknowledged that they had enough evidence to convict him, but he would maintain his innocence. In essence, he pled guilty to four counts of rape, which included the other family members, and manslaughter for Jessica. With this agreement came a 20-year sentence. Stanley still says, to this day, he did not kill his niece. Edna, in an interview, said, quote, Sitting in prison is not justice. I have to work every day to pay taxes for him to be able to stay in prison after what he did to my Jessica. That's not justice, unquote. Mike says if and when Stanley gets out of prison, he will be waiting for him. And to be completely honest, I don't blame him. Thank you for listening. <laughs>